Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries Podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. Welcome to today's episode of Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. I'm Mary Vandenack, founder and CEO at Vandenack Weaver Trulson. I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about tax and legal issues, trusts and estates, business succession and exit planning, legal technology, law practice management and leadership, and well-being. First, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Veterans Victory and Business Centers, Carson Private Client, and Foster Group. Here's a message from Interactive Legal. Technology has become an essential part of our daily lives. However, not all fields have embraced technology. Lawyers, especially estate planning attorneys, need to stay up to date with specific laws and any issues affecting taxes and wealth preservation. Implementing an automated drafting system can help lawyers spend more time with their clients and less time doing back office tasks. Estate planners and law professionals turn to Interactive Legal as their main resource for the latest planning strategies. Interactive Legal provides the most comprehensive productivity system on the market with an easy-to-use document drafting system, extensive continuing education, thought-provoking discussion forums, and more. With Interactive Legal, attorneys get to spend more time with their clients. It's time to connect, collaborate, and create. To learn more about Interactive Legal, visit interactivelegal.com. Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business, resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth, giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. On today's episode, my guest is Joy Mottock. Joy is a partner at Sachs, an accounting firm offering tax advisory solutions. Joy is the leader of the trust and estates practice. I asked Joy to join me today to talk about strategies related to non-grantor trusts. And I just have to mention that Joy and I met through a contact with Marty Shankman, who is one of the greatest connectors that I've known. I had a Zoom call with somebody else. He connected to me. So this is somebody you should know. And without having ever met each other in person, we were like co-authoring articles as a result of the connection with uh, Marty Shankman. And so I just like to give a shout out to Marty as well for connecting us. And I really appreciate the connection, Joy, because it's been a joy to get to know to you. And no pun intended there. But thanks for joining me. And a lot of times I do jump right into the um, podcast content, 
but I was reviewing your background. And could you just share a little bit of your background? Because your background sure. really kind of supports what we're talking about. Absolutely. It's it's really nice to be here, Mary. Thank you so much for inviting me. And thank you to Marty for introducing us. Uh, I am Joy Matak. I run the Trusts and Estates team here for Sachs LLP, which is an accounting and advisory firm. And it's a unique position to be in. I am an attorney by training, uh, but obviously work with the accountants. Uh, so I get to see both sides of transactions. Uh, and I act as, really, uh, as a liaison for our clients between their attorneys and their accountants so that they can truly understand the all of the issues and the parameters of any deals and any planning that they're doing. Uh, it's a it's a great position to be in, and I really do enjoy what I do. Uh, I get to advise my uh, accountants that work with me on how on the taxability of various trusts and different opportunities that might be presented under the trust instruments, uh, as well as work with the at attorneys to make sure that we're collaborating and bringing the client back to the attorney when that is necessary to do. Uh, for example, there might be something in a trust agreement that requires uh, a second look at it, something that maybe needs to be modified or uh, could potentially give the client a better opportunity to achieve some of their objectives, which may have changed since the original agreement was made. And I get to bring that back to the attorney and work with them to make that happen. So uh, I really do enjoy the position that I get to be in. I like to collaborate with people like you, Mary, uh, to make sure that we're giving the best product for our clients. And I have to tell you, the the reason I wanted to share that, have you share a little bit about that when I was rereading the profile and thinking about it, was that as somebody who's in the private practice, like, you know, I see X part of the world and you're in both worlds and the best work for the client is work that brings together I might have a great trust and a great concept, but if the that can't be applied in a sensible way, that's going to make sense down the long time. So we've done a few podcasts on collaborative planning over the last couple of years, and I think that's just so important. Personally, to me, I insist on meetings that involve collaboration, but I particularly think your role kind of having both ends of that really helps bring clients a great product at the end of the day because you can bring the accounting tax and some of the things related to the trust and the strategies together. One of the hot topics in the last, well, you know, for a long time has been grantor trusts. And so when you and I began talking about doing a podcast, well, everybody's talking about grantor trusts all the time and even more so the last few weeks with some rulings that we've had from the IRS that have been interesting. And we said is what doesn't get enough press really is the concept of the non-grantor trust. So let's get out there and talk about non-grantor trusts because there are a lot of really good uses for them. And let's make sure that we have in good information out there. So can we just start by making that distinction between, well, what are those terms? What do those terms mean when we talk about a grantor trust versus a non-grantor trust? Sure. Well, it's funny because you, 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 we want to talk about non-grantor trusts, but the way that we have to talk about that, I think, uh, is to start by talking about grantor trusts, right? So grantor trusts are the bee's knees. They are ubiquitous in planning. We're doing them all over the place. Uh, the grantor trust rules were originally created to stop wealthy taxpayers from using trusts to shift their wealth. So what had been happening is, is that 
you know, wealthy taxpayers would say, I'm, I'm paying too much income tax. I really want to push this, this income to another vehicle that will be in a lower tax bracket, but I still want to control everything. And I still want to decide what happens with those assets. And maybe I want to take them back at some point. Well, Congress said, yeah, we're not going to let you do that uh, without having some kind of a penalty. And the penalty that Congress came up with was we're going to tax the income in that trust back to that wealthy taxpayer so that the income shift wasn't allowed to happen. And based on the way that they put the rules together, lawyers like us went out there and found some different mechanisms that we could use with grantor trusts so that we can leverage more wealth into these trust vehicles while allowing the assets in the trust to grow income tax-free and having our wealthier taxpayers pay the taxes uh, at their from their assets that are going to be otherwise included in their taxable estate. Uh, and there are different things and different mechanisms that you can do. So let me just summarize what you're saying happened is Congress came through and said, we're going to create these grantor trust things to prevent this evil thing that wealthy taxpayers are doing by shifting assets into non-grantor trusts. So we're now going to make them grantor trusts. And you, the grantor, the person that created the trust, is going to have to pay the tax on that. And that was to try and prevent these transfers of wealth. But then a lot of savvy tax practitioners said, oh, well, let's look at this differently. If we're trying to avoid estate taxes, then we use these grantor trusts. The grantor has to pay the income tax, and it's not a gift, so we reduce the wealth that way. That And so basically what was done to prevent evil getting used for a different evil if you're the IRS or a great thing if you're clients of tax attorneys and tax accountants. That's exactly right. That's 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 exactly what happened. And of course, we created all kinds of other mechanisms using the grantor trust rules and the fact that tax or transactions are disregarded between the grantor, the original settler, and that grantor trust. Uh, for example, the sale to a grantor trust, et cetera, and so forth. And as a result of all of that, we're able to leverage out wealth more effectively. Of course, every grantor trust eventually will become a non-grantor trust because on death of the grantor, the settlor, that trust will then become a non-grantor trust. There are some clients who don't like paying income taxes on income that's not actually getting into their bank accounts. So sometimes we turn off grantor trust status and create non-grantor trusts that way. Other times, grantor trusts just become non-grantor trusts by operation of some term that might be in the trust agreement. Uh, and other trusts are just created as non-grantor trusts from the beginning. Essentially, a non-grantor trust is created as a separate taxpayer. It's a vehicle, it's a trust agreement that is a vehicle that is going to be taxed on its own. It pays its own taxes. So can I just ask you to give like the simple example, which is, let's say that we have uh, you know, a traditional husband and wife, just because that's an easy example. And they've each created what's a revocable grant or trust during life. And spouse number one dies. That spouse number one's trust because of death becomes a non-grant or trust. And essentially now we have surviving spouse with a revocable trust and deceased spouse 
with a non-grantor trust. And I sometimes explain that like this non-grantor trust steps into the role of the deceased spouse. So it's now a separate person. Is that a somewhat reasonable way in turn? That's a good way to think about it. Uh, and then and then there's different kinds of non-grantor trusts, right? In the scenario that you just set up, I would assume, of course, I would read the trust agreement to confirm this, but I would assume that husband's trust that became a non-grantor trust on his death is probably a simple trust because it probably requires all income to be paid not less often than annually to the surviving spouse. And under Section 651 of the code, that makes it a simple trust. If, on the other hand, it were created as, for example, a credit shelter trust or some trust maybe for the for the benefit of the children or future generations of the family, perhaps it's set up so that it's that distributions are not required so that it would essentially trap the income and the uh, principal unless distributions are actually made, in which case it would be a complex trust under Section 661 of the code. So you would want to be looking at the terms of the trust agreement to understand the taxability of that uh, trust and to confirm whether it was going, how it was going to be taxed and whether any distributions were required. And that's one of the things we were talking about in pre-planning this was that the simple trust, as you said, all of the income, if it's the husband and wife situation, is going to likely flow through to the spouse. And that means we don't have to do all these complex calculations, but it also gives us a lot less opportunity for shifting income tax among various people. So it's a matter of, well, what are the objectives? And if I have a sp- two spouses and they both have more money than they're ever going to be able to spend, I might leave the spouse as a beneficiary in case she needs it or he who or whatever the case might be. But I might then name children, nieces, nephews, you know, grandchildren, whatever the case might be, additional beneficiaries, which I was referring to as well. We might add additional tax pockets. Then we've taken the trust from being simple to be in complex because we have options as to who's going to get the distributions. Is that? That's correct. That's correct. And the way that distributions work or the way that the tax, the tax implications of distributions work is that the trust essentially is going to be the first taxpayer. And we're going to calculate all of the income at the trust level. And then we look to whether distributions have actually been made. In a complex trust, to the extent that distributions have been made, those distributions are going to carry out income first. And I'm, I'm oversimplifying a little bit for the purposes of illustration. Uh, so but- can I ask you to do it even, even in a simpler? So let's back up and say, let's say I have a non-grantor trust with $100,000 of income. It doesn't, it's not a simple trust. It's a complex trust and we decide to distribute none of it. What's the tax on that trust on that hundred thousand of income? Let's say um, it's a resident of New York City. So that trust is going to be taxed uh, at the highest tax rate in for federal purposes uh, on every dollar that it earned over thirteen thousand five hundred dollars, and uh, so that's thirty seven percent. Assuming it's net investment income, it'll be uh, taxed at an additional three point eight percent net investment income tax on everything over that uh, that that initial $13,500 threshold. It's very short. It's a very compressed 
uh, tax bracket for trusts. And then it will also be taxed uh, on New York at New York state levels, as well as New York City levels. So you're getting taxed. So that 100000 by the time we add up all of those numbers, becomes a pretty small amount left in the trust. It'll probably have about, and, and, and I am not an accountant, but it will probably, so I'm not able to do this all. Not the doing the math in the head. I was staying with the concept. Let's just say it adds up to 60%. About 50% yeah. of it, it it's going to be a high, high tax rate because New York has a tax rate over 10%. You've got over 43% on the federal side. So it's going to be about a $50,000 tax when all is said and done. And the balance then stays in trust, whatever, whatever. And so sometimes, and that's one of the reasons, so then where you were going was you were talking about the option is that if we have that 100000 it's a complex trust, and we have perhaps a surviving spouse as a beneficiary, but she's already in the maximum tax bracket. But let's say we have three adult children in their early 20s, who are all going to college and the trust allows for distributions to them, can we make distributions to them? And then how does the tax work if we were to give 10000 to each of those children? So if I were to make a distribution for, and I had $100,000 of income in the trust and I made a distribution of $10,000 to each of three children, then each one of those children would have, assuming that it's it depends on the kind of income. So I'm assuming I have ordinary income or accounting income of $100,000. In that case, $10,000 distributed to each child would then give each one of them $10,000 of income that they would have to pick up on their 1040. And the trust would have a $30,000 income distribution deduction. So by having a complex trust with multiple beneficiaries, at least in some cases, you can distribute or reduce the overall tax cost to some degree. We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our sponsors. At Foster Group, we know there are more important things than money. There's the joy of providing a lovely home for your family, the excitement of an early retirement, the relief knowing that an unexpected emergency won't ruin your finances. At Foster Group, we're invested in the things that make life, life, and how to get there. Foster Group, your financial life, truly cared for. Connect with us at fostergrp.com. Foster Group's written disclosure brochure, as set forth in Part 2A of Form ADV, discusses advisory services and fees, is available at www.fostergrp.com. Okay, let's continue our episode. What other reasons? So, I mean, there's it's pretty tax expensive given we have this compressed, we have a highest rate at this very compressed level of income. And so, the, but there's other reasons to use non-grant or trusts. What might those reasons be? Well, okay, sometimes it's not a choice, right? A grant or trust is going to turn into a non-grant or trust on death. And that just happens. Other situations um, where a non-grant or trust is settled through testamentary bequests on death, this also would be a situation where it's not exactly a choice. Uh, so that might be a, a situation. In certain situations, you'll see a grantor trust where they turn off grantor trust status because the settler does not want to pay taxes anymore 
at their you know, on the income that gets earned by the trust. Because in your scenario, where $100,000 gets earned by the trust, assuming that we're a grantor trust, that $100,000 would get paid to the trust, but the grantor would pay taxes on it. The grantor would have to pay the $37,000 of you know federal tax plus net investment income tax plus New York and New York City tax. You know, the, the grantor might not want to shell out $50,000 on income that they didn't actually receive, notwithstanding the tax benefits of doing so. And then finally, the other category would be those non-grantor trusts that we purposely create. And there are certain cir circumstances where you would want to create them. For example, there are uh, high tax states like New York, New Jersey, California, where we would want to avoid the income tax at the state level on income earned on certain assets. If we were to settle a trust in a low tax or no tax jurisdiction like Nevada, Alaska, South Dakota, uh, or Delaware, we would set up trusts using a trustee in one of those jurisdictions and create it as a non-grantor trust with the intention of avoiding the state income tax in the higher tax rate tax bracket uh, states. And that's one of the fun things we like to do. But I'm going to go back just for a minute to the comment you made about, in some cases, the non-grantor trust is not a choice. And that's often upon death of somebody that's created a revocable grantor trust. And so early on when we were talking about the simple trust, and we talked about, well, you might benefit just the spouse, but you may also want to benefit. So also when you're creating that revocable trust, there's certain assumptions I think that sometimes we as practitioners go and think about that we really should play through. Like I actually run scenarios and it's one of the reasons that sometimes I will use trust shares to accomplish objectives. It's really what are their objectives? And of course, taking care of surviving spouse, minor children, some of those things are much often more priorities. A lot of clients are very tax driven. It just depends. But part of the conversation when you get to taxes is, well, do you want all of the income to always go to the spouse, in which case we have no tax bracket play? Or do we want to have some additional beneficiaries? So when you're doing that, where it's not a choice, really thinking about the beneficiaries and even the possibility, we have these traditional ways that as practitioners that we've drafted trust, but between the changes in the estate tax realm and portability where you can have some play there with what you do, I would just say that I do a few more trusts these days that have shares that do different things. And one of those shares might create additional beneficiaries just for tax brackets. So we talked about that a little bit. Can you elaborate on some of those, the tax bracket strategy? We've talked about it, but one of the other rules that you mentioned in the discussion was when it comes to these complex trusts where we have the option to make distributions to different beneficiaries. So we can take, leave the, we can leave income in the trust. And even at those maximum brackets, I'm just going to say there are times you mentioned the asset protection benefits and the state income tax benefits. If all of the beneficiaries of a non-grantor trust make a lot of money and they live in New York and California, there may be reasons to leave the income in a non-grantor trust in Nevada where there's no state income tax and you have some asset protection for the assets. But one of the things I love working with or I love about complex trusts, just because I think it's kind of fun, 
is what you refer to as the 65-day rule. Do you want to explain that? Sure. Under Internal Revenue Code Section 663B, we have an opportunity. And you don't always get this opportunity in tax, right? It, it, it's, it's, a unique, uh, it's a unique instrument that you get only for complex trusts. And the 65-day rule is exactly that, right? We start from the last day of the year and we run it out through 65 days, which I believe is March 5th. In that 65-day day window, we have the opportunity to look back on all of the income that is earned by the trust and determine whether it makes sense to make a distribution and then treat it as though it happened in December of December 31st of the year of the prior year. So here's how it plays out, right? 2022 goes by, we have $100,000 worth of income, no distributions are made. It's early February, Mary calls me and says, hey, did you take a look at this trust? Let's see if there's any play that we can we can do here in order to get reduce the income tax for the overall family unit. So we sit down with the Smith family and we look at everybody's tax bracket and we identify this particular beneficiary, a grandchild, who happens to be in a no tax, low tax bracket, right? Doesn't make a whole lot of money, just, you know, the, uh, the, the summer job that she had. And maybe it makes sense to make a distribution to her in order to reduce the overall tax liability for the whole family. Well, it's early February, so we've already missed the end of the year. But fortunately, we have 663B. And if the trustee were so inclined, the trustee could make a distribution to this grandchild, pushing the income out to her, and then the trust will get an income tax deduction to the extent of that distribution, and my beneficiary will pick up the income on her individual income tax return for 2022, even though she didn't get the distribution until 2023. And I always warn the beneficiaries to know, okay, you might get a check on February 28th, and you're going to pay tax on it for last year. Yeah, and they don't generally mind because usually there's another check that comes after that to help pay their taxes. So generally, it works out pretty well for them. And with the K-1, we'll be able to maybe there might be some expenses that will offset that. There are different things that can be done. Plus, we expect that the uh, beneficiary is at a a significantly lower tax rate. So a 23, 24% tax rate might be a better deal on that $10,000 distribution because you're only paying $2,400 of taxes and you still wind up with, you know, the the balance $7,600, which is still more than what you had before. And this rule is another great example of where collaboration among advisors can save clients a lot of money. And as you were talking about the February 28th, and we're talking about talking at the end of a tax season, recording this podcast, there's also, you know, we represent a lot in the agricultural world. A lot of farmers can actually file their returns on March 1. So if I have farmers who are beneficiaries of these trusts, I'm like, don't be really, really overly anxious. I mean, they can amend the return, obviously, right? But I'm like, don't be overly anxious to file your return until we get to that February 28th date. But what else import is important in the collaboration? I would say one thing is sometimes we see significant gains or changes in the investment accounts at year end. And I get caught by surprise. So we did a pre-planning meeting on 12-15. And it's an advantage of the 65-day rule because if we didn't know that on December 15th, we can figure it out before February 28th. 
Right. You've got two weeks. You've got two weeks before the end of the year to, to harvest losses if you have significant gain in the in the accounts. Maybe you would be so so let's talk about the different kind of buckets of income, because I think that that becomes really important here. Uh, not all income is created equal from an income tax, from a from a fiduciary accounting perspective. And not all income is necessarily distributable to your beneficiary. If you're talking about capital gains, they typically get trapped at the trust level. Unless your trust agreement provides that the trustee can make a decision and basically adjust some of those those capital gains from principal to income for fiduciary accounting purposes. The benefit of this will be that I can push out capital gains along with my distribution to my beneficiary. So so what happens? We have $100,000 worth of income. $30,000 of it is interest and dividends, but the other $70,000 of it is capital gains, long-term capital gains. If I don't exercise a power of adjustment, or if I don't have a power of adjustment, then the trustee is going to be stuck paying taxes at the trust level on that $70,000 of capital gains income. No matter what I distribute to my beneficiary, if I distribute $100,000 in this example, the beneficiary will only pick up $30,000 of income, interest and dividends. The $70,000 of capital gains will be stuck at the trust level. On the other hand, if the trustee is able to exercise a power of adjustment and push that, that item of income, that capital gain, from principal, where it usually resides, where it usually sits, and takes that principle and pushes it over to income for fiduciary accounting purposes, then when I make the $100,000 distribution to my beneficiary, she will pick up $30,000 of interest and dividends and $70,000 of ordinary uh, of, of long-term gain. And my trust will get a $100,000 income distribution deduction, completely wiping out the income and there will be no trust or no tax due at the trust level. So another important area in which the collaboration is important. So if you as a trust drafter just use a form without thinking that through, is let's talk to bring in the entire team, make sure we're understanding. So I like to have the accountant look at my allocations, discuss them. If uh, you know, there's an investment advisor, oh, this is kind of what, would you give me a heads up when this happens so I know and so we can make adjustments? I think another example that you talked about was partnership income. And I think that's one of the things people get really confused about. Yes. And unfortunately, that we can't fix after the end of the year. So that's where it really becomes vital for the the, the accountant who's working on the trust return to talk not only to the attorney who drafted it and who can help interpret it, but also to the accountant who might be handling the partnership Uh so in a lot of situations, we see uh, clients moving partnership assets into their trusts. It makes sense. There's a lot of opportunities to leverage wealth out using valuation discounts uh, by, by putting fractional shares of a partnership or closely held business into a trust. So partnership income is basically divided into two buckets. First, there's taxable income. 
And that's all the interest, dividends, rental income, ordinary business income, those types of income coming through. And that will be taxable to the trust. However, from an accounting income perspective, the only item that will matter is the distribution from the partnership to the trust. And unfortunately, a lot of our partnerships, a lot of our closely held businesses are not making distributions to the trust. It's fortunate for the business because what they're probably doing is earning a bunch of money and then reinvesting it in the business, which is important to do. But it's unfortunate from the trust accounting world because by not making that distribution to the trust, it means that from an accounting income perspective, the trust has no accounting income. So let me go back and give you an example. Let's assume that taxable income is being apportioned from the partnership to the trust in an amount of about $120,000. But the partnership doesn't make a distribution from its assets to the trust. So the distribution is zero. No matter how much I distribute at the trust level to my beneficiaries, I will not be able to wipe out that $120,000 of taxable income that's flowing from the partnership to my trust because I have no distributable net income. I have no distribution from the partnership to the trust. So it would be important to have those conversations in early December, hopefully before that, probably throughout the year, about whether the partnership has the wherewithal to make distributions to the trust so that the trust will have sufficient accounting income to push out that income to the income beneficiaries if that is what is intended. And so again, it's important also to look at what assets you are putting in the non-grantor trust, because let's say that partnership asset is the only one and it's not a closely held partnership interest, so you have no control over the distributions and you have no other assets and you either have beneficiaries or trust that has to pay the tax. So in the planning, you really have to look at what assets get transferred to the grantor trust. Another point you've talked about that I think is really important because we're doing a lot of tax talk and we both love tax. I love tax, but I do know that if the, I know I had a client recently say to me, Mary, what you do is like so boring. I can't, I'm like, what? I absolutely think it's fascinating. What do you mean what I do is boring? She said, well, I'm just grateful for you because you actually like it. I was like, okay, I don't know if that was a weird compliment or not, but anyway. Well, I love this stuff, so. Yeah, no, I do too, and that's where we're hitting it off. But but I, but where I wanted to go is another thing, and you talk about this, I think it's hugely important, is that when we're drafting a trust, and I mentioned to this early, when I draft a trust, I do what I call objective-based planning. And I sit with a client instead of telling them what I think they should do, try to ask an open-ended question. So what's going on in your family? And leave space there and let them really talk about what they want or what do you really want to achieve if you're not here? And leave space there because otherwise it's too easy to drive the conversation and not really hear what they want. And so part of that is if I really spent a lot of time drafting a trust and I know that my particular settler has significant concerns about one particular beneficiary and how they might use the money, or they're just, you know, they're too generous. They just give everything away to anybody. 
They go to New York City and every homeless person gets a giant amount of cash every day, whatever the case. I was trying to make it not too real because it can be really some real issues that we run into with drugs, alcoholism, mental health issues, things like that. But so you talk a little bit about the fiduciary duty in relation to tax. Can you just speak a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I and this is I this is how I, I put it to my clients, because this usually uh, kind of gets them to to think through what their real objective or, or, you know, to really get real. And what I tell them is that half of our children are going to have a divorce at some point or another. And you need to be careful how the trusts are administered so that the assets that we leave to our kids don't become the asset that is argued about in divorce court. And what I mean by that is if if the trustee is making regular and continuous distributions to the child, the adult child, uh, and the adult child starts relying on those regular and continuous distributions from the trust and uses it for her livelihood and uses it to support her family and uses it for all of the maintenance and support uh, of her spouse, then at some point, if she and her spouse are to go through a divorce, and it is 50%, according to the statistics, 50% likely that that might happen, uh, then at that point, her spouse will be able to potentially argue that even though the assets in the trust are not accessible because they're not considered marital property, the distributions are part of the income that should be considered in considering spousal support on a going forward basis. So even though there is maybe no mechanism for that spouse to get at the assets in the trust, my fear with regular and continuous distributions to a beneficiary is that those regular and continuous distributions can someday be used as uh, you know, a need to provide additional support for a future ex-spouse. So there, the, the points are that, one, again, there's a trust drafting thing. I used to say, hey, we're going to distribute or have clients say, I want to make sure that you know, my beneficiary gets at least 5000 a month, no matter what the, benef- what the trustee thinks. And they would do that for fear that the trustee was not going to distribute. And doing that 5000 per month is going to set that up, and not only for divorcing spouses, but for creditors in general. So you diminish the asset protection of that trust by doing those mandatory distributions. I'm just going to mention, since we're just touching on this subject, that Sharon Klein from Delaware Trust, I'm sure you know her, but she did a couple podcasts with us covering the issues related to marriage and estate planning and the trust. And we spent a lot of time talking about how to design the trust to protect from those type of issues. So that's one of the things we're talking with the client about their objectives is, do you care you know, if we do this mandatory distribution per month or that there's various distribution standards that could make it susceptible to a divorcing spouse, a creditor. And I guess the other ones I spent a lot of time talking with them about is if we have a child who has an issue with addiction, gambling, any of those things, or if we have a mental health issue that isn't a total incapacity and doesn't require a special needs trust, but certainly leads to some challenges in managing finances that while we could save some taxes by distributing to that beneficiary, is that the best? Is that really what the settler wanted from us? 
So I think the way you'd couched it was like the overall family unit object. I can't remember how you said it actually, but I was thinking of it as got to look at the fiduciary particularly has to think about what were the objectives of the settler. As much as we love all of our tax saving techniques, there's sometimes that other objectives prevail over that. But let's go. The driver, right? We have to make sure that we're considering what are the needs of the beneficiary and what are the risks to the beneficiary of making additional distributions. And I think all of that really needs to come into play. Paying a little bit extra tax or a lot of bit extra tax, right? If you're talking about New York, California, uh, but paying extra tax may be worth it if we're protecting the assets and protecting our beneficiaries from themselves which was the purpose of setting up the trust in the first place. So one of the things I have to say I love, Diane, to go back to taxes, because one of the things you really can save some taxes with on non-grounded trusts is state income taxes. And you gave me a summary of the current tax rates in several states, which normally I'm looking at a 50-state list, and you kind of get some of these states have really high rates, and I work with clients in some of these high-tax states. But it was like kind of jarring to look at this list. So I don't know if you'd share at least some of those tax rates. So when we talk about saving state income tax rates, if people really add up all their tax costs, it's a lot. We keep picking on California and New York. So let's start there, right? California has a 13.3% tax rate. That's their high tax rate. New York is at 10.9% if you uh, live in the Big Apple, if you live in New York City, it's 3.876%. Uh, I was surprised by this. Uh, South Carolina is at 7%. Iowa is at 8.53%. Minnesota, 9.85%. My home state of New Jersey is 10.75%. That's the high rate. Uh, Washington, D.C. is 10 and three quarters percent. So taxes can be very high and depending on where you are. You also have to know where you are and know what the rules of the jurisdiction where you reside, because that is really going to dictate how you can avoid those state income taxes, uh, because every state has its own rules. And you're going to need to really make sure that you have a good advisor, that your advisors are collaborating and that you understand how to avoid the state income tax that you're trying to avoid. So let's talk about some of the ways we use non-grounder trusts to reduce state income taxes. Sure. So uh, first of all, let's let's start with, I, I like to set the, separate them into buckets. So there's settler resident states. That's states that are, that based the residence of the trust on where the settler resided when the trust became irrevocable and when it was funded. There are beneficiary resident states uh, which is based on where the beneficiaries reside. California is a hybrid. California uh, will tax a trust based on where the trustee resides and where the beneficiary resides. And then other states have kind of a cornucopia of rules, uh, which will be based basically on where the trust is administered or where the trustee resides or some combination uh, of those different things. You need to know what kind of state you're in so that you can understand what kind of state, what kind of rules you're trying to avoid. For example, in a settler resident state like New Jersey, New York, you cannot have a resident trustee over the trust. So it's going to be very important for the tra trust drafter to be mindful of who your named trustee is 
and who the successor trustees might be. And of course, we also have to be aware of where people are moving because we are, you know, moving. We are the, uh, the kind of world where people move around a lot. Uh, so, so definitely keep an eye on that. Uh, you want to be able to create a, a chart. I like to create a chart where I look at for every trust that I have a, where is the trustee? Where does the trustee reside? Where are the assets? What kind of assets are in the trust? If the trust only owns um, intangible assets, partnership interests, marketable securities, uh, cash, those types of things, it's not really going to matter because the trust situs or the situs of the assets is going to be its intangible. So there is no situs. Where it owns real estate, that kind of you know grounds you to that to that jurisdiction. So, so I just want to really emphasize the distinction you just made. So when we're taking, let's say, a non-grantor trust that owns intangible assets, is it correct that that trust is the one that you can take and move to Nevada or South Dakota, my neighbor, and take advantage of their rather readily income tax rules versus real estate? So if I put real estate in a trust and I'm a resident of California and make it a non-grantor trust, I'm still probably going to get taxed in California. So California is different because California is a hybrid state. It's based on where the beneficiary and the trustee resides. So if you're a California resident, you could actually set up a trust with a California piece of real estate as long as you don't have a trustee or a beneficiary there, although it might be really hard to avoid California because you're going to probably have California source income. For New Jersey, New York, uh, Illinois, states that are uh, settler resident states, you would not be able to move it if what you have in that trust is a piece of real estate located in one of those jurisdictions. So if I have a New York trust that owns an apartment building in New York City, you're going to have to be taxed in New York City. There's just not going to be anything you can do. So when designing a non-grantor trust and you're trying to avoid state income tax, I like this idea that you use. Use that chart and create. So I'm putting in that chart settler, trustee, beneficiaries type of asset and then i'm going to location of assets location of assets and then i'm going to compare that to the state rules based on the bucket and see if i can pull that off yeah that's right so let's take an example and actually i i had an example like this i had a new jersey trust and the new jersey trust owned a building in new york city and so it was settled by a new jersey resident and it had a, owned a property in New York City. So far, so good. I had a New York trustee, which makes sense because the property's in New York. Uh, I had New York source income. Okay, no problem. Doesn't matter. I had no New Jersey source income. I didn't have a New Jersey trustee, and I didn't have uh, and I didn't have any uh, situs assets located in the jurisdiction in New Jersey. So because of that, I was able to have a Nevada trustee move it out of New York, move it to Nevada. And even though I'm still taxed on source income in New York, because I don't even have a dollar of New Jersey income, I can avoid the 10.75% tax rate in New Jersey because the assets in New, there are no assets in New Jersey, there's no New Jersey trustee, and there's no New Jersey situs asset. So now in that particular one, you don't run into the New York State throwback tax either, correct? 
Well, no, because the New York, so so New York does have a throwback tax, and we probably should talk about that. That only applies to New York resident trusts. So where I have a resident of New York who settles a trust, I have to be really thoughtful about whether it makes sense to take the position that the trust is a resident exempt trust. That is, New York will always treat it as a resident of its state, no matter what happens in the trust. That's New York's rule. But they say, well, we're going to let you exempt out of our income tax if you don't have a trustee, you don't have any situs assets, and you have no New York source income. However, if I make a distribution to someone who is a New York resident, all of the tax that was would have been due on any income earned by that trust in the last five years will now become taxable as though it had been earned in the prior years and unpaid. So the effect of that is, is that we have to throw back our tax to the date that it was originally earned and pay an interest and penalty to the state of New York for having not filed a tax return and reported that income as taxable to New York. It's really problematic. So you have a few issues that you have to look at in these situations. Well, we're getting to the end of our time, so I just want to ask you if there's any additional things that you want to add before we end. So I would just reiterate, avoiding taxes is great. It's it's a great opportunity, and using non-grantor trusts to avoid income taxes in various states or to limit uh, tax exposure by making distributions is a good strategy. However, it's really important that the fiduciary consider the objectives of the trust and make sure that even though we're avoiding taxes or mitigating taxes, that may not achieve the objectives that we're trying to achieve. I think it's really important that we not allow the tax tail to wag the dog, notwithstanding the opportunities uh, to avoid or mitigate our tax liability. So I'd footnote those, Joy, with what we've said a few times over, but I think is so important is collaboration and then having a great network. Because you know I'm fairly good at what I do, but there's 50 states in this country and what they're doing is, you know, we had a case, the Castor case that is a case that's significant in this area that we don't have time to go into, but I've talked about that on other episodes. But at the end of the day, 50 states constantly changing both their tax laws and their trust laws. And I can barely keep up with my home states and some of the other states that I'm working in. So having that great network, and I had a client once who said to me, Mary, you're pretty good at what you do, but you'll never be everything to me. So have a great network. I really have enjoyed listening to the depth of the knowledge that you have to j- today, Joy. I appreciate you sharing that with our listeners. As we reach the end of our episode, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Veterans Victory, Foster Group, and Carson Private Client. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to today's episode and stay tuned for our weekly releases. Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast does not create an attorney client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have. A Huda Media Production.